When the students are graduating from high school, you often will see uh, the grad photos, but then there will be some publication that will include some pictures of each of the grads when they're a baby. Most times you see grad photo, baby photo side by side, and then there are other times when they put all the baby photos together and you're supposed to try and guess which one is which graduate. But you don't see very much resemblance sometimes. There's a very slight resemblance. Other times you can immediately pick out who that is. Now, I was going to show you some of my baby pictures today, but you would have been going, oh, and just overwhelmed by it and then not listen to my message. So you, you just have to trust me that I was a cute little guy. <laughs> but when you look at the birth of Jesus Christ, and then you look at him again at the time of his resurrection, you will notice that he is the very same character. It, it's the same, and it's consistent all throughout his life. So as we study the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to look at the similarities between that event and also his incarnation when he was born into this world. And hopefully you'll reach the conclusion that he is indeed the son of the living God. He is indeed the king above all kings. So we're going to notice, first of all, Jesus' humble nature. And we're in Luke 24 today, verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a town named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking about everything that had happened, and while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and began walking with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus deliberately kept himself from being recognized. Have you ever been out in public and you hear someone talking about yourself? What do you do? The first uh, temptation is to say, well, I'm that Greg Nicholson that you're talking about, but... We don't do that. We want to hear what they have to say. So here we are after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and these two guys are talking about those events. And Jesus kind of perks up his ears. He disguises himself so they won't know who he is. So he puts on a fake nose and glasses and mustache so they're not aware of who he is. No, it wasn't that. And then they traveled along the road together, just as if he was an ordinary traveler. And Jesus was modest, even in victory. To be honest, if I was Jesus, I never would have bothered going to visit along the road with these two nobody disciples. They're not even mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. They don't even get their names in the Bible. Yet, he found it important to go to them. And then also, he, after the resurrection he could have gone up to those Roman soldiers that he had scourged him and spit on him and mocked him. And, and I would have said if I was him, hey, do you guys remember me? And then I would say, strip to your waist because these angels, friends of mine, are going to administer a beating to you guys. And when you think of angels, most of the time we think of these little 
blue things with nice wings. But every time there is a record of an angel appearance in the Bible, the first thing the angel says is, do not be afraid, because they were frightening creatures. They would scare people. So I would have the angels there to administer the beating to those soldiers. And better still, I would have appeared before the Jewish ruling council that had actually orchestrated and rigged that trial against me. And I'd appear right in the middle of one of their meetings when they were gloating about the fact that they had been able to get rid of me. And I would just say, I'm back. But his appearances weren't what one would expect. He, he, the first person he appeared to was a woman whose reputation wasn't very credible, Mary Magdalene. And now he appears to these two disciples along the road that don't even get a name, as I mentioned. And, but that's consistent with the unassuming way in which he came into the world. When the wise men came looking for the birthplace of the king of the Jews, they came to Jerusalem, the capital city, and to the palace because they expected that there had been a dramatic entrance into the world. But Jesus came so unpretentiously that King Herod had no idea this had even happened. He had no idea where it took place. And the biggest announcement didn't come to royalty, but it came to shepherds, those blue-collar workers. And they must have just been astounded. First of all, to hear that the Savior had been born, but to be even more surprised to find that he was born in Bethlehem and that he was lying in a manger. So when Jesus comes to us, he comes in an unassuming way. Well, sometimes he does come dramatically at something like a Billy Graham crusade, and he'll come to an emergency room of the hospital when it's in the midst of crisis. But most frequently, he comes when you least expect him and don't recognize him until he's gone. Jacob ran away from home, and he bedded down for the night in a field with a rock for a pillow. And that night he had a vision, and the vision was of this ladder. And this ladder went up to heaven, and angels were descending and ascending that ladder all night long. And when he woke up, he thought, surely the presence of the Lord was in this place, and I didn't even know it. So when the Lord comes to you, uh, there may be many times when you don't recognize him except in retrospect because he comes so humbly. In the summer of 1978, I was working in the registration office of Marco Polo Land, a campground in Cavendish, PEI. And towards the middle of August, things slowed down a little bit. So the owner would take the more strapping young men, which I was a part of, and he would get us to do some heavy physical labor to prepare for the next summer. So it was things like cutting down trees and chopping firewood. But there was one day when it was kind of slow, so he sent us to the community I grew up in to actually paint his mother's house. And everything was going okay until I, I was at the back of the house, up on the ladder, and I saw the Maritime Christian College van, the sign was right on the side, driving up and parking in the driveway. And then I heard Kenneth Norris, the president, I'm looking for Gregory Nicholson. 
And at first, I was going to keep hiding up on that ladder because I knew he was there to recruit me for Bible college. But something just took me down off the ladder. I shook hands with him. And two weeks later, I was registered at Maritime Christian College. So the Lord was in that place. And then a year later, I was uh, at a college-age weekend camp at Canoe Cove Christian Camp, and I met this gorgeous young woman, and I didn't want to blow it. I didn't want to try one of those crazy pickup lines that people use, so I just went up to her and said, you're Pat Smith, aren't you? I'm Greg Nicholson. It, it's so good to meet you. And a few months later, we had our first date, and my life has been changed in an incredibly great way through marrying her. So once again, the, surely the Lord was in that place. And then in the summer of 1988, a young man came from Halifax to Burt's Corner, New Brunswick, where I was preaching at the time. It was my only other church, actually. And his mom was in, and dad were in the congregation. But he said, I'm part of this church in Halifax called Halifax Christian Church. It's seven years old, but we have about 20, 25 people, and we're looking for a pastor. Would you be interested? And I didn't realize that the Lord was in that place, on that golf course that day. And that response that I made, the positive response, ended up changing my life in a great way. But I was golfing terribly. And I thought, if the Lord was there, why didn't I score better? That would have been the, the round of my life. And then in May of 2010, James, our associate pastor, and my son-in-law, and Tim Cook and I traveled to the New England states, to Manchester, New Hampshire. And we were going to check out Restoration House, which was a church planning organization, as well as some of the local churches. And as a result of that visit, our church took some steps that led to a dramatic transformation. And I didn't know that the Lord was in that place, but he was. Elijah said that God usually doesn't speak with a big booming voice from the mountaintop, but he speaks with a still, small voice in a whisper. And he often doesn't perform spectacular miracles to impress people, but he comes humbly, inviting us to come to him out of our own free will. Then Jesus impresses us with his patience. We're now in verse 19. Jesus said to them, what are you talking about? And they said, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet who said and did many powerful things before God and all the people. Our leaders and the leading priests handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he would free Israel. Besides this, it is now the third day since this happened, and today some, woman among, some women among us amazed us. Early this morning they went to the tomb, but they did not find his body there. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. So some of our group went to the tomb too, and they found it just as the women said, but they did not see Jesus. So Jesus waited, and he listened while they related to him the story about him. And that's not an easy thing to do. There are seven guidelines 
that we want our youth groups and life groups to use to build a healthy disciple-making culture in the church. And number five is give everyone a chance to share. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He must have been so anxious to cut in and say, hey now, you don't have that fact quite right. But he didn't. He patiently waited for them to discover the truth on their own. So the best teachers, they don't just dump a bunch of material on students and then say, here, go figure it out on your own, but they guide them into discovery. Let's say you give your daughter one of those little animal puzzles with, and you are watching her play with it and she picks up the elephant and she's trying to find the little spot for the elephant to go in and she goes to the dog and then she goes to the cat and, and you're hoping she moves over towards the elephant and she does but she's got the piece upside down that doesn't fit and you want to turn that puzzle so badly but no, you have to allow her to discover discover this on her own. But then she moves back toward the dog again. And then maybe you intervene and you say, give me that piece and let me show you how to do it. But if you do that, your toddler doesn't learn. She has to learn on her own. Think of how patient God was that first Christmas. One of the carols that we sing has the line, long lay the world in sin and error pining. So the world was just looking for something someone to come along to save us. And for thousands of years, God waited for just the right time for Jesus to be born. He waited until the Jewish religion had permeated the known world. He waited until most of the people were able to understand the language of Greek. And then he also waited until Roman roads made it easy for missionaries to get throughout the kingdom, to spread the message. And then he waits 30 years living as a carpenter's son while falsely being accused of being illegitimate. And his mother wanted him to demonstrate his power right away. But he waited three more years of ministry and under misunderstanding. And then he waited three more days in the tomb. And now he waits two hours for these guys to talk about the things of the Spirit. And it's an amazing thing that God's still patient with us. Years ago, people were saying, keep Christ in Christmas. That was the motto. And then, well, to say anything about Christ at Christmas time is going to be an offense to someone else. So school concerts eventually became called holiday concerts. And now they're not even that anymore, but it's winter festivals. Look at what Luke 9 says. If people are ashamed of me and my teaching, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and with the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So God is still being patient with us in spite of our cowardice and our arrogance and our pseudo-tolerance. And he wants us to stand up for him. And then the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow in doing what he promised, the way some people understand slowness, but God is being patient with you. He does not want anyone to be lost, but he wants all people to change their hearts and lives. So we need to remember that God's patience actually has its limits. It's not unlimited because the Bible says, my spirit doesn't always strive with men. 
And the people of the time of Noah, they found out that when the flood took place. The people that lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, they discovered that. And the people of Nineveh discovered that. The people of Rome learned that God is patient, but there is a limit. He isn't a fool, and he doesn't wait forever. So Jesus patiently waits for us as he patiently waited for these two men on the road to Emmaus to discover the truth. And then we notice Jesus' insightful teaching. These men were finally through with their explanation, and then Jesus began to teach them from the Old Testament scriptures, the predictions about who the Messiah would be, where he would be born, and that type of thing. So that's verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, you are foolish and slow to believe everything the prophets said. They said that the Christ must suffer these things before he enters his glory. Then starting with what Moses and all the prophets had said about him, Jesus began to explain everything that had been written about himself in the scriptures. Now, we don't know which ones he went to, but I'm thinking these might be seven of the ones that he would go to. I'm wondering if he went all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Genesis chapter 3, and he would say, you know when God's word said that the serpent would strike the heel of the offspring of the woman, he was predicting that the Messiah would be killed. But he says the offspring of the woman would actually crush the head of the serpent, meaning that the Messiah would conquer sin and death at that empty tomb, and the serpent would be defeated. Maybe he went to Psalm chapter 22, where it says, they will cast lots for my clothes and will pierce my hands and feet. And maybe Jesus would say to them, this was actually written hundreds of years before the Romans even invented crucifixion as a method of execution. And yet, here are the words right there. And Jesus had said that he would have his hands pierced and his feet would be pierced. And that's exactly what happened to him as he was dying on that cross. He would undoubtedly go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it was predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And he would say, remember how Mary insisted that she'd had a visit from an angel and the birth of Jesus was miraculous. He could have pointed to Isaiah 53, where the prediction was that the Messiah would die for the sins of the people, that he would be despised, that he would be rejected for them, that he would be pierced for their transgressions, that he would be crushed for their iniquities. And then Jesus was placed on that cross. Isaiah 53, 9 said that the Messiah would die with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich. And then the guys would say, oh, yes, he, he was crucified between two criminals and then he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And then maybe he said, Micah predicted that even though he was referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, he was actually born in Bethlehem. Now on PEI, 
In order to be a true islander, you actually have to be born on the island. You can move to the island when you're a month old, and they say you're from away. Son-in-law number one, that's the first one married into my family. That's James, our associate pastor here. He was actually born in Digby. His dad was a pastor in Digby County. Moved to PEI when he was two years of age. So he didn't quite get that uh, designation. Then uh, son-in-law number two, I thought he was from Cape Breton. But when I was getting Sean and Brittany's wedding together and Going through their information, Sean was born in Summerside, PEI. His dad was in the Air Force, and he lived there the first three years of his life before going to uh, Germany and then back to the Halifax area. So he's an islander. So here they're referring to Jesus as being from Nazareth, but he was actually born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet had predicted. Or maybe he said, Remember how King David said, you will not abandon me nor allow my Holy One to see decay? He wasn't talking about himself. We still have King David's body to this day. He was predicting that the Messiah would come back from the dead. So these two guys, they're now putting the pieces of the puzzle together and they're starting to think, you know, maybe the women are right. Maybe the tomb was empty. Maybe they did see angels. Maybe Jesus is alive. So at 28, they come near the town of Emmaus, and Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they begged him, stay with us, because it is late. It is almost night. So he went in to stay with them. Now, have you ever gone on a two-hour trip with somebody and it just seemed like five minutes. It went so quickly. Or maybe you went to watch a movie and the movie was over before it even seemed to start and you wanted more. Or have you ever at the end of a sermon yelled out, no, don't stop, preach on, 15 more minutes. These guys had walked with Jesus for a couple of hours and They'd been listening to him, and they hadn't heard enough. They wanted to hear more, but they realized, well, we're now almost at home. So they urged him to stay with them so they could hear some more of his teaching. So from the time Jesus arrived in Bethlehem, he'd always captivated people with his teaching. And he had a number of different titles, but the two that were the most common were teacher or rabbi. And he has now commissioned us to go out and make disciples, to make learners of other people. And we need to take every opportunity that we have to be able to tell others uh, about Jesus. Because Jesus said, you are to go into the world and you are to teach everyone to obey everything I have commanded you. And then finally, we see his transforming power. That's in verses 30 and 31. When Jesus was at the table with them, he took some bread, gave thanks, divided it, and gave it to them. And then they were allowed to recognize Jesus. But when they saw who he was, he disappeared. 
So now, all of a sudden, after two hours, they recognize Jesus. Some people say, well, it's because of the way in which he, he broke the bread. And they remembered what the apostles had said about the Last Supper. Or someone said, no, it was more about the way he prayed. And all of a sudden, they recognized him. I, I believe it's something to do with when he reached out for the bread at that table. And the sleeve of his coat slid up. And they would be able to see the scars, the nail prints right there in his wrists. But and then maybe it was just a miraculous thing that he was, they were allowed to see Jesus. But we just know that their eyes had to figuratively jump out of the sockets and their hearts would be pounding. They were looking at that hand and then they would look up and they would see Jesus' smiling face and nodding at them. Yes, it's me. You guys have it right this time. Like, what a moment. And then in verse 32, they said to each other, it felt like a fire burning in us when Jesus talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us. This is unbelievable. This is incredible. How could we not have known the whole time that this really was Jesus? Nobody else teaches like that. I want to hear more of what he has to say. So the followers got up at once and went back to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven apostles and others gathered. And, and they were saying, the Lord has really risen from the dead. He showed himself to Simon. Then the two followers told what had happened on the road and how they recognized Jesus when he divided the bread. So Jesus dramatically changed these two men. He changed their attitude from despair to joy. He changed them from belief to actually doubt in regards to faith. Excuse me. He changed their belief from doubt to faith. He changed their behavior. They were going home for the night, and now they turn around, and they go the 11 kilometers back to Jerusalem. And from the time Jesus arrived, he has been in the business of transforming lives. From the moment Mary gave birth and she and Joseph laid the baby in the manger, their lives were changed and they had to spend the next two years in Egypt for safety because Herod was killing all Hebrew babies under the age of two. The shepherds, they changed their focus from tending sheep to actually telling everyone that the Messiah was born. The wise men, they gave up what they were doing to follow that star and to give up a big portion of their wealth as well to give to the baby. And then the prophet Simeon, he changed his attitude toward dying. He did not want to die until he had seen the Messiah. And when Jesus was presented in the temple at date eight days of age, he said, okay, it's time, I can go. And that baby Jesus grew up to die and conquer the grave, and he will change your life too. He'll change you from a sinner condemned to die to a sinner saved by grace. He'll save you from being a stranger and alien to God to actually being adopted into his family. He'll change you from living for the shallow pleasures of this world to living for an eternal purpose. And he'll change you from being consumed by material things to being consumed and enamored with spiritual things. The Apostle Paul said, I no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. 
One of the old hymns of the faith is Amazing Grace. And the first verse says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And that's exactly what has taken place when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. We were wretches. We were lost without him. But now we are fine, found in him. So Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. From his birth to his crucifixion, he was the same. His character stays humble. His manner is always patient. His teaching is captivating, and his influence is transforming. That's why Jesus alone merits the title of the king above all kings. Every other king, they come in power, and then they conscript people to go out and fight wars for them. Jesus came to die for us so that we would be able to live in eternity with him. So he alone comes in humility. Every other king dies and their body decays, but Jesus, he died. He rose from the grave following that and he is now in eternity with their heavenly father. When England's Queen Victoria was young, she was instructed in matters of court etiquette. And she was told to go hear a production of the Messiah that next night. And they told her, when you hear the Hallelujah Chorus, everybody will stand. But you are to remain seated because you are the Queen. And when the Hallelujah Chorus came, she remained seated while everyone stood. But when it got to that line, a King of Kings and Lord of Lords, she couldn't contain herself. She stood and she bowed her head in recognition that Jesus is the only King of Kings. Jesus is the only Lord of Lords. Do you know him as that? Or do you just know him as a teacher, as a rabbi, as a lot of people did in Old Testament and New Testament times as well? Or do you know him in that way? If not, we can tell you how to find that. Just talk to me, talk to James, any of our other leaders, and we will guide you in developing that relationship. 